So, just in case someone's new tonight, uh, this is a series that's been going on since the beginning of September, uh, where we're trying to think about racism in all of its forms. And in the month of September, we talked about the church's historical complicity in systemic racism in this country. Jamar led us through those weeks uh, along his book. If you have not read The Color of Compromise, I would highly recommend it to you. It's an incredible read. And when the calendar turned into October, we began thinking more present tense. What's been going on now? What's happening now? And so since we last saw you, Jamar, we've talked uh, with the state senator about public education. That's been in the news in Little Rock of late. Um, we've talked with our mayor, and we talked with our police chief and sheriff, who, I must say, last night had a banquet, uh, partly for the sheriff's department and partly for the Little Rock Junior Deputy Baseball Program. And at that banquet, he talked about just policing, and it being more than just punishment, but restorative, and it captured me. And I want to say again how grateful I am for the sheriff and for our city leaders tonight, for whom these conversations are not abstract ideas and good notions and fanciful thoughts, but who do it, and who lead us as a community to do it. So thanks, Sheriff, and thanks for being here tonight. So, Jamar, we want to talk tonight about where you see the church today. You've talked about the church's history, and so let's talk about what you see today. Uh, you travel around a lot. You see a lot of different kinds of churches, a lot of different Christian traditions. Uh, Jamar has uh, spent more time in my alma mater than I have uh, of late speaking, and uh, we just want you to talk to us tonight about what you see across the Christian landscape today in terms of racial justice and reconciliation. So uh, just generally speaking, to get us started tonight, what do you see when you look around today? Thank you, and thank you again for coming out. It's great to see you. It's great to be at Arkansas uh, Baptist College again. Um, I do have the privilege of going literally around the country, coast to coast, and speaking at different churches, colleges, seminaries, you name it. And so, from my perspective, there are a couple of things going on. I think um, one side of encouragement is a general shift, a subtle one, but uh, present, from talking strictly about racial reconciliation to talking about racial justice. Um, I've mentioned this in, in weeks past, but the racial reconciliation movement among Christians and in the church, you could kind of roughly trace from the mid to late 1980s on up through the mid-2000s. And this was characterized by movements such as the Promise Keepers. And they had a big rally in Atlanta, for instance, in the 90s, uh, where the focus was on getting mainly black and white people, Christians, together. Uh, so in that era, that was a really big deal. Um, another, you know, sort of, example of this racial reconciliation movement is Mission Mississippi in Mississippi uh, that has this intentional um, vision of healing the racial divide among black and white Christians, sort of one relationship at a time. But therein lies the limitations, I think, of the racial reconciliation movement 
uh, so conceived, which is that it's very individualistic, um, does very little to address the systemic and institutional manifestations of racism, and so people kind of stop. You know, once I've made a friend across the color line, it's seen as I'm doing my part to eliminate racism. The transition um, with events such as uh, Trayvon Martin's murder, uh, the Ferguson uprising, the Black Lives Matter movement, Emmanuel 9, of course the 2016 election, and many, many other events have sort of pressed the conversation toward matters of racial justice. How do you create equity across social institutions, including the church, but also beyond it in politics and economics and things of that nature? So that, to me, is a relatively new and encouraging development. The other thing I observe, especially among young people, especially among college students, that's typically pretty much my favorite group to, to talk to, because it's that stage you know, when um, they're thinking for themselves, they're formulating ideas that could be the foundation of their faith and their sort of public life for decades. And there's an openness in that generation to not reiterate or relive uh, the culture wars kind of approach to race and justice and society. Um, there's a curiosity there. Uh, there's sort of a different relationship um, in general towards diversity and plurality. Um, and I think more generally, even just beyond college age students, uh, I've been really sort of pleasantly surprised at the way people have received the book, um, The Color of Compromise, because I think it just came out in a moment where, where people recognized there's something deeply, deeply flawed in the way that American Christianity, particularly white American Christianity, has approached issues of race and justice. And I think there are a lot of folks who don't know quite what to do, they just don't want to do what they've always done. and so. Uh, there's an openness to learning this history, um, to sort of being surprised by it, even if it's uh, you know a very sort of tragic and unsettling history. But I think the the openness of people to receive that is a good sign because, uh, as I say in the book, there can't be um, true reconciliation without truth and without truth telling. So those are some of the things I see. So let's. Since you went there, let's park there just for a moment. I hear you saying kind of different trajectories of church life, what you see. Racial reconciliation, the idea let's just be together and come together, and surely there's virtue in that, right? That is not bad. But a different trajectory that focuses on justice, racial justice. And where the, the justice is the means by which we get at the end of reconciliation, right? So tease that out a little bit. Let's, I, I think I totally agree. Yeah. If you say racial reconciliation today, every Christian in North America is going to say, hallelujah, amen, racial reconciliation. But when you get to the, the justice component of that, the fairness, the equity, and the nature of that reconciliation, who's shaping that reconciliation, that's the kicker, right? You want to tease that out? Sure. So it's the basic idea that you know reconciliation would include, hey, let's let's get coffee, let's have a lunch. Um, again, those things aren't bad, but all the cups of coffee in the world aren't going to do a thing about mass incarceration. All the church potlucks in the world aren't going to do a thing about the racial wealth gap. 
And so what do you do in, with those sort of bigger issues that are lending themselves to uh, a really difficult lives for large swaths of the American populace in general, but particularly people of African descent? Um, so there, there's been a historic lack of sort of initiative on, on the, from a church, from particularly white church perspective. Uh, black churches have often been involved in sort of more holistic ministries, not uniformly, but um, have seen it as part of their sort of gospel call to address you know, issues of housing or um, uh, feeding the poor and things of that nature. Um, but we need to do more of that. And the conversation needs to, in some senses, center around that. And just speaking from personal experience, sort of the racial reconciliation movement opened the door for, for folks like me, black Christians, to um, be involved in white Christian ministries and spaces. So uh, I've had a pretty eclectic religious background, but I've spent a lot of time among white evangelicals. And I think in the past seven to eight years especially, being in those circles has really been um, disappointingly eye-opening for a lot of people, uh, particularly black people, but also you know, advocates uh, across the racial and ethnic spectrum, where we thought we had made all this progress, right? Um, you have black people in leadership positions and in churches and schools that are Christian. Um, you have you know, pockets of diversity within churches or seminaries. And what, what came to light through all of these instances of racial tension and outright racism in our society is that um, when it came to issues of voting, when it came to how folks spent money, when it came to sort of talking points and approaches to, to race and justice, not much had really changed. Um, and so I've mentioned this article before, but uh, I encourage everyone to read uh, the New York Times article by Campbell Robertson called A Quiet Exodus, A Quiet Exodus. And he details the, um, the sort of quiet exit of many black Christians from predominantly white Christian spaces, particularly in light of the, the 2016 election and the partisanship uh, that we've seen uh, in some circles of Christianity. So, you know, it's not a surprise historically that this would be the case, but when you experience it firsthand, when it's 2019 and some of these issues that we've talked about, you know, 50 years ago, uh, like King in his uh, 1963 I Have a Dream speech talking about the fierce urgency of now, and in many instances it still feels like we're in the fierce urgency of now. So, yeah. And just a couple of thoughts in response to that. You write in The Color of Compromise as a historian. It seems to me part of the weakness of the just the reconciliation understanding of this is a real ignorance of history. Right? Uh, slavery, and slavery by other names, was not just the bad attitudes of some individuals. It was scripted into law, it was scripted into economics, it was scripted into education, it was scripted into the fabric of our lives as Americans. And so if we're going to address racism, it's not just the attitudes of people. It might begin there, that, that's not a bad place to start, but it must not end there because Racism was inscribed in all of these aspects of our society, and until we talk about those systems at play, we're not talking about it. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. So, 
you brought up MLK. He said Sunday morning is the most segregated time of the week. Uh, I think that would probably still be true. Let's talk about that a little bit. What do you see on Sunday mornings? What, what does the diversity of a Sunday morning crowd tell us or not tell us about that church? Is it the only metric for how well the church is doing in this regard? And why is it still the most segregated time of the week? Yeah, you brought up a critical point. What does racial and ethnic diversity on Sunday morning actually tell us? And sort of implicit in that question is that just getting people of different races and ethnicities in the same room on Sunday isn't sort of the total package, isn't the whole story. So we have seen, of course, an increase in uh, diversity, mainly in predominantly white churches becoming more racially and ethnically diverse. Sort of the sociological and the academic definition of a multi-ethnic church or multicultural church is um, no particular racial or ethnic group comprises more than 80% of the congregation. So if at least 28% of your congregation is of a different race or ethnicity, then technically you qualify as uh, multi-ethnic. So we're seeing a slight increase in, in those kinds of churches. But the real question is, what is life like for racial and ethnic minorities in those churches? Uh, there's a fantastic sociologist named Corey Edwards, K-O-R-I-E. She's at The Ohio State University. And um, she wrote a book called The Elusive Dream, where she talks about the tendency, even in multi-ethnic church context, to culturally trend toward whiteness and uh, white cultural values. And you'll see this in the music they choose, in the topics they choose to address from the pulpit or in Sunday school classes. You'll see this in um, oral history interviews with actual attendees at the church who feel like they're not being seen or heard or valued, even if they're present. And so one of the things I often say is that in these multi-ethnic church contexts, uh, whether it's a church or a school or some other Christian institution, Oftentimes, racial and ethnic minorities are valued for their presence, but not for their perspective. Which means, it's great that you're here. We love that you're here. Our doors are open, the more the merrier, but don't rock the boat. Don't change how we've always done things. Or, it's this very sort of gradualistic approach, right? Where, okay, we'll, 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 we'll tweak some things, but sort of the core of how we make decisions who we look to as authorities, whether theologians or pastors or, or people in the congregation, that doesn't fundamentally change. And so, um, diverse, there, there's a big difference between uh, desegregation and integration. So desegregation, you know, most churches, almost all churches are desegregated. They'll let anyone come in and sit in the pews and they'll kick you out, which even as early, yeah, as recently as the 1970s, that was happening, right? Like, church elders and trustees literally blocking the doors to the church for interracial groups of worshipers who wanted to come there. Um, uh, there's a great book by, um, it's called The Last Segregated Hour, and the author is a professor from Rhodes College, and does a great job of detailing like, the, the massive resistance of certain churches, particularly these big downtown uh, churches that literally barred uh, the doors of the sanctuary. So that's not so much the case anymore. Desegregated, but is it truly integrated? 
in the sense of um, the power to share, uh, particularly with uh, the racial and ethnic minorities in our midst. So, you talked about living most of your life in white evangelical spaces or you know, being comfortable in those spaces. When you walk into one of those spaces, what's, what would tell you this is a safe place for me? And what would give you cause for concern? And maybe even the more subtle things you would notice in that space. That's really, really good. Um, I can typically tell within about five minutes of entering a new church or, or organizational space, whether, uh, I'll say how far along this sort of racial journey um, this organization is. If it's a church, uh, for me some telltale signs are when I walk in the door, who's there to reach you? Um, do I see visually any racial or ethnic diversity? Um, how do they receive me? And everyone's been friendly, right? I haven't walked into a church yet that has looked at the color of my skin and, and been mean to me for that reason. But you can sort of sense when it's kind of a paternalistic, oh, it's great to have you here. Um, but it's, it's, it's kind of, you're, you're, you're exotic, right? You're a novelty. Um, versus a church uh, that may even be predominantly white, but it's like, it's used to diversity, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not so shocking to see a black person or a, another person of color. Um, then immediately, when worship starts, what's the music like? Which is just sort of, I mean, the words and the content of songs are, are really important in a worship setting. Um, but the aesthetic of music, of music is important too. And, and you know, there's not, in traditional black churches, a lot of guitars, you know, uh, there's not a lot of just, uh, it's different, right? It's different. And, and then even beyond that, what does worship feel like? Is, is it an environment where uh, it's not just intellectual but emotional? And so is it okay to sort of stand up during worship? Is it okay to clap? I've been in a lot of Presbyterian circles, they call them the frozen chosen. These questions are, are critical, right? Because if you do anything other than stand up with a hymnal or looking at the screen, uh, it, it, it's going to turn heads. Um, are you turning heads when you do things like that, which are, which are um, pretty common in other church settings? And then the, the sermon, right? Uh, who's being quoted? Is it, is it all dead white men? Because that signals to me that you see these folks as really the only authorities. Or is there some diversity in uh, who you're quoting? Is there some diversity in um, the illustrations in a sermon? So is it, is it all illustrations that would be common and approachable to white people, or are there some that are approachable to black people, right? Are you quoting Seinfeld for an illustration, or are you talking about blackish, right? I mean, those, those kinds of things are small but telltale signals. Um, a church budget will tell you a lot about, about where the heart of the congregation and the leadership is, and then particularly how those churches handle conflict and controversy along racial and ethnic lines. I'm talking to a guy right now who's going through a traumatic time with his uh, 
the local branch of his denomination because they're preaching about social justice. And that has been a proxy to sort of criticize their theology, their orthodoxy, and basically, uh, you know, the higher ups are kind of clamping down, even on what's being said from the pulpit. Uh, and mind you, this church is incredibly racially and ethnically diverse, so something is resonating with people, but it's seen as a threat. Let's, uh, let's park there for a second, and it's related to something I said earlier. The diversity of a crowd on a Sunday morning can tell you something, but it doesn't tell you anything. This is a conversation we've had at Second. We're a predominantly white church. We long to be as diverse as uh, the kingdom of God is. Uh, however, is that the only metric? Or is there a place for predominantly white churches to, to get it? To begin waking up to some of the things we're talking about and live the gospel prophetically in the streets and in, in the worship center, uh, even in their whiteness. Does that make sense? I, I'll say this and I'll give the mic to you. I vaguely remember you tweeting once, so I may be putting these words in your mouth, about how the di diversity on Sunday morning is sort of an easy metric, right? What's the more faithful? What are the deeper metrics we should be thinking about in terms of racial justice? Did I tell the truth about you? Did I make that up? Probably, yeah. No, that's, that's true. That's true. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's a difficult question. How do you move beyond the aesthetics? How do you move beyond just the presence of racial and ethnic minorities and what that truly means? Uh, in the literature about productivity, you may have come across this four-quadrant model, where in, in one quadrant there's um, tasks or, or priorities that are urgent and important. Another one is not urgent but important. Another one is uh, not important but urgent, and the last one is not important, not urgent, right? And I think, so for productivity, you want to focus on um, uh, the not urgent but important, because those are sort of the long-term big goals, big rocks, right? But sometimes you have urgent and important matters that you have to attend to. The problem is if you live there, you're not ever um, sort of paying attention to the long-term important matters. And you want to avoid those other two quadrants as much as possible, right? So I think a similar principle could apply to churches in their approaches to racial and ethnic diversity. So sometimes there are urgent and important issues. In Little Rock, for example, uh, what's happening in the public school system. That's happening right now, it's immediate, it's urgent, and it's very important. We're talking about uh, segregation in public schools. We're talking about one of the key institutions in our society, in our local community. Uh, to me, a church that's truly de dedicated to, to, to racial justice is involved in that. And beyond just aware, uh, trying to advocate for the most marginalized. Um, other urgent and important situations might be humanitarian. A tornado strikes, people need food, they need water, they need shelter, churches are involved in it. But there's also the, the not urgent but important category. Um, not urgent meaning there's no deadline. Uh, it's sort of an ongoing kind of pursuit. Um, 
it may or may not be in the headlines or a current event, but it's still important. Uh, that would be, you know, how do you get CD and F schools uh, to, to perform better, to get the resources they need? That would be, um, how are you approaching not just a refugee crisis that may happen under a particular administration, but your general stance toward refugees and immigrants? And how can you assist there? So to me, beyond sort of what we see in, in the pews on Sunday, I want to see where the churches are on those urgent and important, not, not urgent, but important categories. Again, the budget is a very telling document. I mean, I just, like, the more I do this work, the more you, I see that you cannot underestimate the financial component, right? Because wealth inequality affects not just society out there, it affects the church too, and it affects the people in the church. And um, for predominantly white churches, like you're saying, uh, to just focus more on your question, um, like that's a big deal. If you can write a check to a ministry that's doing good work, that will not go unnoticed uh, or unappreciated. Um, additionally, and I say this cautiously, there are white churches that will forever remain predominantly or almost exclusively white. So I've been to Iowa a few times on speaking engagements. It's one of the, one of the top five whitest states in the union. It's over 90% white in terms of its population. There's going to be limited diversity that you see there racially and ethnically. They are getting larger uh, groups of, of Latinos and Latinas in even small town Iowa, but it's never going to be this overwhelming population. So what can a church in the middle of Iowa do about diversity? Well, number one, there's more than racial and ethnic diversity. There's class and gender diversity as well. Um, and, and so looking at those other forms of diversity, I think is important because if you sort of do well on, on one area of diversity, it's going to make it easier on other areas. The second thing is preparing your constituents for diversity. So it's very much the case that uh, people are very mobile. They may not be in this predominantly white church setting forever. When they leave and go to a more multi-ethnic setting, are they prepared for it? Have they heard the gospel preached along these lines? Have they, um, you know, had their minds and hearts shaped so that they're ready for any diversity they might encounter? Yes, sir. Um. What, what obstacles do you see that stand between where we are today and real racial justice in this country for the church? Yeah. What, they, it could be theological obstacles, political obstacles, social obstacles. What, what are the two, three major concerns that you have about getting from where we are to where we need to be? So sort of obstacles that we're facing. Um, if we're talking about white Christian and particularly white evangelical institutions, the idea that colorblindness is a virtue, I think, is a big obstacle. Uh, because what that does is it sort of um, lets people off the hook for understanding racial dynamics in our country and understanding that uh, if you are a person of color in America or in the church, you're experiencing reality very differently from a white person. Uh, to, to, to say we're colorblind or post-racial would say, oh, that, let's just leave all that in the past. When the reality is, I walk out of this building and I'm a black man. I'm not Jamar Tisby, I'm not author, historian, 
Christian, I'm a black guy. And I have to sort of deal with reality on those terms. I want white people to understand that. I don't want that to be the only thing they understand about me, but I don't want, and, 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 and the colorblind ideology also sets up this dichotomy between our embodied selves and our spiritual dignity, right? So it says, oh, I just, I just view people as individuals, we all created equal, but I'm in this body on purpose, right? That's not a mistake by God, and there's not this separation between soul and body. We are embodied souls, so that's part of the package even theologically, right? Another obstacle is theological. I've mentioned a couple times. Who do you look for? Do you look to as authorities, as sources of information? Um, in an American context, you know, it's prominent folks like Billy Graham, Jonathan Edwards, uh, more contemporary folks, John Piper's, you know, of the world. But is that it? it because what that suddenly communicates is that only this group of people can be trusted to explain the Bible. And it's not at all accurate. In particular, we need to look at historically oppressed and marginalized communities and learn from them what it is like to be people of faith in, in the midst of injustice, in the midst of exclusion. So a great book, if you haven't read it, it's very, very short, is um, Jesus in a Disinherited by Howard Thurman. And uh, that plays out a beautiful kind of explication of what it's like to look at Christianity through the lens of what he calls the disinherited. Um, uh, uh, so that's, you know, theologically, what lens are we looking at to, to understand the Bible? Um, and then relationally, we're still so segregated. Um, and this has really come to, to take on a, a new nuance for me in the midst of um, interacting a lot more than I used to with white secular liberals who have sort of like all the right views on paper about, about race and justice, who sort of say all the right key words and things, um, and who may have really good will around these things, but they don't know any black people. They don't, they don't hardly know any people of color, right? And so then you're still limited because you don't have the embodied experience of a person of color to learn from, um, to draw upon. So, I mean, a lot of different obstacles. Individualism is, is a huge one in the American church in general. But, you know, that's just standard service. Yeah. Uh, that a little bit. To where I can feel some proximity of your lived experience, it's a different way of knowing. Which I hear you and I've heard other people say, that's what white liberals don't get. They think just education, we just, if we all know the truth, we got it. But truth isn't just rational, it's relational too. And so, some proximity too. Well, I've stolen a lot of your stuff, so. Um, and I want to finish up with where you finished up as well. If I was going to make that list from a white man, pastor, a predominantly white church. I think one of the biggest challenges for the white church today is teaching people how to think systemically. Because when in the West, regardless of what you're talking about, white people are talking about it individualistically. So I'll say the word sin. And people think sin is what an individual does. Salvation. Salvation is when a soul is saved. But biblically speaking, 
and from a systems perspective, and from a black lived experience, sin is not just what individuals do, it's what systems do too. And salvation is not just what happens to individuals, but it happens to systems and cultures, and it has something to do with creation, and it has something to do with who our neighbors are. And so teaching white people to think systemically, I would say, is one of the biggest obstacles. I'll say this and I don't even like it. Sorry about that. Um, for most of my journey, I thought racism is what bad people consciously did. And it took black voices teaching me that I have, I have experienced white privilege unconsciously. It was the air I was breathing simply because I'm white. And it was things I couldn't see simply because I'm white. And there were systems in which I, were, I was participating in that were sinful. And I didn't even know it. And so part of what repentance is, is not just repenting from the things I've done, but awakening to the systems in which we all participate and what we do with that. So the systems thinking. Um, and part of that gets back to the historical question. Like, we are just, just as a society, terrible at, at knowing our own history. Like, just names, dates, places, what happened in American history in general, let alone global history, right? But it's particularly bad when it comes to our racial history, and it's even worse when it comes to the racial history of the church. So, just, just talking about U.S. racial history, um, I've mentioned before the 1619 Project, um, this year is the 400 year anniversary of when uh, people of African descent were forcibly brought to the coast of Colonial Virginia. It's sort of a, a, a handy marker of, of what became race-based child slavery. Um, and Nicole Hannah-Jones, an investigative reporter with the New York Times Magazine, uh, coordinated this whole extensive effort to unearth some of that history and the legacy of slavery. The reaction to that was very telling. People lost their minds. They hated it because it, it undermined this idea of American exceptionalism. It undermined the idea of the, the virtuous you know, founding fathers, if you quote unquote, right? Um, and it tells a very different history if you start American history in 1619 as opposed to 1776 with the Declaration of Independence. And then even then, woven into all people are created equal, right, and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That really, they didn't have black people in mind. They didn't have women in mind. Um, the Constitution never uses the word slavery, but there is in Article 4, the Fugitive Slave Clause. So they did, by some incredible opportunity, you are able to self-emancipate and escape into freedom. You were obligated by the Constitution to return that formerly enslaved person back to their enslaver. Uh, that's in the Constitution. Um, uh, an entire civil war is fought for emancipation. And then you get these uh, Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments that never fully realized for, for a brief moment during Reconstruction, right? But then uh, states like Arkansas and Mississippi inscribed into their state constitutions the disfranchisement of black people, a disfranchisement that will continue to wrestle with to the present day. So if we don't have that kind of understanding of history, and then when it comes to the church, right? I, I posted on my Facebook page just yesterday 
Martin Luther King Jr. visited the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in, I want to say it was 1961. And um, I heard about this visit in the past couple of years, especially on MLK Day. And Southern Baptists and, and the seminary sort of touted it as this, see, we were open-minded even back in the 60s. Well, the landscape of the seminary was very different in terms of its professors and student body at that point. And then, this goes back to some of the obstacles toward racial justice. King came, the students, by and large, really appreciated his visit. He was talking about you know, the need for Christians to support racial desegregation, etc. A lot of the professors were supported. Some of them were the ones who invited him there. But when it came to other Southern Baptist churches around the country, when it came to the Board of Trustees, there was this massive backlash, um, namely in terms of financial support. So the way that churches made their distaste for King's visit and broadly for the civil rights movement, the way they made their distaste for it known was to say, we're going to stop contributing money. And I think for colleges and universities, for churches, for nonprofit organizations, that's often the lie. How fast you work toward racial justice is determined by how quickly the money dries up from your supporters. Uh, and, and that's unfortunate, right? Because we know from the Bible that God never guaranteed us that we're going to get rich in ministry, uh, that we're going to be financially solvent. And this is one of the things that um, my organization, The Witness, has taken very seriously. We've left a lot of money on the table from white evangelical institutions that could write, you know, four and five figure checks quite easily to support our work. But we're not willing to do that because it comes with strings attached. And the moment we say something that they don't like, the check goes away. And, and we're committed to doing what we need to do, but to do it in a principled manner and to say what we think we need to say, even if it, and it has, cost us money. So put yourself in a pastor's chair, you're a pastor of the church. I'm going to say a phrase. I want you to tell me what you hear with this phrase. Just preach the gospel. I hear an artificial bifurcation of the spiritual and the material. A bifurcation that is by and large foreign in black church contexts and in the context of other uh, Christians that are in a marginalized or oppressive situation. So it goes back to um, one historical event I mentioned uh, in the past was Francis Lejal was a uh, Catholic missionary with the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel. And when he baptized uh, people of color, people of African descent, Native Americans, he made them say in their baptismal vows, you promise that you are getting baptized not out of any ambition to free yourself, but purely for the good of your soul. Hmm. And in those baptismal vows, the, the vows you say that, that indicate your entrance, your formal entrance into the family of God, he's saying there's this separation in your confession between your spiritual condition and your material condition. That, that separation among some big, big swaths of Christianity has never gone away. So in the present day, just preach the gospel means you're talking too much about social justice. You're talking too much about um, uh, the criminalization of black people. You're talking too much about um, political and economic solutions to inequality. And actually, what, what, what you're doing is you're impinging upon our power, you're impinging upon our comfort, and the way to change society is not to talk about all those things which are extraneous to the gospel, 
but to just preach the gospel, meaning when you convert people to Christianity, they will become more like Christ, and then the world will be a better place, one soul at a time. Which was, you know, sort of the Billy Graham approach, kind of the white evangelical approach. And um, again, it really doesn't ever address the um, the racist policies that make life difficult for people of color. There's a kind of a Christian leader in North America today, Jonathan Wilson Hargrove, who talks about slaveholder religion, which is precisely the kind of religion that says you have spiritual things and souls and real faith over here, and you have politics and systems and social justice over here. And we want preachers to live here, but the gospel has nothing to do with this which is how you perpetuate what he calls slaveholder religion. You, you become Christian, but it has nothing to do with your real lived life. It has to do with soul and physical things. I mean, spiritual things. Uh, and so, I really resonate with what you're saying about this false bifurcation of physical and spiritual which is rooted in the very creation account. You don't have to get out of Genesis 1. I mean, God didn't just create souls. Like, God made the stuff of life. And when we start splitting that up as if God has nothing to do with this other stuff, it's a good way to cover up our sin. So, maybe we've got some work to do in that regard. I've got one more question for you, and maybe we'll have some time for audience questions. What can the white church learn from the black church? So there's um, an author, Roger, who wrote a book called The Benedict Option. In that book, he basically argues that Christians need to form their own institutions and their own communities of formation because the world is increasingly secularized and it's increasingly pushing out uh, Christians and, and sort of Christian morality and ethics, and basically says there's no stopping this. It's, ine it's inevitable and inexorable, and the only hope to preserve Christianity is to kind of create our own stuff. Um, to which I responded in a book review that uh, so he goes to um, Saint Benedict in Europe, I think maybe Italy or, or, or France somewhere over there, hundreds of years ago and talks about basically the monastic lifestyle and how they formed Christianity. And I said, well, you, told, you, you jumped in the ocean, and right in your own backyard, you have the historic black church that has always existed in the margins, that has always existed in a place of sort of rejection from the majority, because of, mainly because of race, right? And so we have a lot to learn from the black church in particular, but from any sort of uh, racial and ethnic minority group about how to exist in a society that gives you the stiff one, that rejects you for various reasons. How to have faith, how to have hope, how to have joy in the midst of unjust situations, right? Um, there's also a great tradition attached to that of addressing the spiritual and the material. Um, many times, historically, black pastors and black church leaders were also elected officials in their communities or even at the state or the national level. And that was not seen as something controversial. 
that was seen as the church leader addressing the needs and concerns of their constituents, their church body, through the political and the social and the economic realm. Um, and we should sort of recover that or learn from that. But it's not just simply a sort of tramp, you know, picking up something from 50 or 100 years ago and plopping it in the present. We, we do have to do some work with translating, right? Um, and so I think that we can learn from black theologians, black Christians. We also have to learn uh, it's not just through the official channels, right? That a lot of great theology is being done in the pews. A lot of great theology is being done on the streets from practitioners, from people who are economically poor. Um, Ella Baker, who had a 50-year career in the civil rights movement with 30 different organizations, was um, great about promoting this idea of, of radical democracy. That one of her phrases was, uh, strong people don't need strong leaders. And she's saying that particularly in contradistinction to really prominent charismatic figures like King or Walter White of the NAACP. You don't need that single figurehead when you empower the people and when you tap into the genius of the people at the grassroots level. So I think that's something that all churches can really learn to tap into. Um, it really it's really interesting to me that the elders and the trustees and the deacons of many churches are the prominent people in society. Why is it that it's the lawyers, the doctors, the accountants, the professional class who are seen as church leaders and not homemakers or um, you know custodians or people who socially don't have as much uh, uh, prestige? It's not as if there's a lack of faith or a lack of wisdom in people who hold those positions, but we don't often grant uh, leadership or authority to them. Um, so I think that's across the board the church can can learn from folks like that. Yeah. I had a thought. Let me see if I can hold on to it. Oh, the obstacle. One big obstacle. This is not related directly to your question. We're going back a little bit. This is for folks across the racial and ethnic spectrum. I think one of the main impediments to racial justice is fear. So uh, a lot of times for white Christians, it's the fear of getting it wrong. I would imagine if there's a fear in, in, uh, among folks in this room, that would be one of them, right? You're new to this, you, you thought one way all your life, now you're discovering something different. What if I wade into this racial justice conversation or activism and I do something offensive? Um, what if I mistakenly you know, uh, say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing? What if all this sort of residual whiteness in terms of ideology leaks out in, in harmful ways? Um, I can say that probably will happen. <laughs> uh, there's really no way to avoid it, but the only way to overcome it is to keep doing it, right? You get knocked down, you get back up, and you keep trying. You learn from the people around you, even other white people who've been involved in a struggle. For black people, there's a uh, real fear too. It's often along different lines. Um, it's very costly to stand up for racial justice, even in sort of everyday ways, let's say it's at the workplace and you see patterns of injustice along racial lines, you become the angry black man, the angry black woman. Um, your evaluations, you get dinged on it because you've spoken up about something that's not right. Uh, people tune out your voice because you're always bringing up this race stuff. Or you face you know, material repercussions where you don't get the promotion or you actually lose the job. Um, and in ages past, that threat has, has been even um, more 
Sands Central, where you could be beaten, jailed, killed for standing up for racial justice. So I would say, you know, among a coalition of willing Christians who really want to see racial progress, we have to address that fear with faith. Um, that as we look at the saints in the Bible and in um, U.S. history, and look at folks like Fannie Lou Hamer, she was already poor. She was a sharecropper. She risked it all and lost it all just for trying to register to vote. And it wasn't a gradual shift. As soon as the plantation owner heard about it, the next day she was kicked off the plantation and under physical threat. Um, I always say people didn't, uh, MLK didn't die, he was killed. He was killed for something as controversial as preaching about the beloved community. Medgar Evers the same way, in his own driveway, uh, murdered, right? And those are the extreme examples, but there are a lot of other everyday examples. But I look at these folks from history and the courage they face under much more daunting circumstances than I now face, and I say, how can I do anything with this? Um, I want to make them proud, so to speak. I want to honor their legacy. And I think as we look back, not just on the big historical figures, but even our own parents and grandparents and what they've done for the cause of racial justice, perhaps we might get inspiration and courage and motivation to walk this walk. I think we may have time for one question and response tonight. Does anyone have a burning question? Uh, since we're uh, on a podcast and a recording, I'll repeat that. Uh, any comment about white saviorism in the church today? I think it, the, the, the concept of white saviorism really traces back to a very paternalistic idea of Christianity. So, um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a plantation economy, let's say, uh, the, the plantation owner was seen as the patriarch. Um, and the entire plantation system was part of an extended family. So he had his immediate family that he was, of course, in charge of, because he was the breadwinner in the mail, uh, but had also his extended family, which would include enslaved people, and they were perpetual children. And so even when it came to preaching the gospel, it was seen as this sort of uh, benevolent, gracious act on the part of the plantation owner to share Christianity with his little children enslaved people who are fully grown, right? And, and you see this leak out culturally when you, when you call a grown man with gray hair a boy, um, uh, uh, an older woman, you, you'd call her auntie or by her first name, not a, a, a position or a title of respect. So over time, I think that still gets translated, for instance, in um, colleges and seminaries where the this Eurocentric theology is seen as the right theology, and that everything else, black theology, Latin American theology, is labeled and it's categorized as other and somehow lesser black. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then even in sort of racial justice, white saviorism doesn't think of it in terms of justice, it thinks of it in terms of charity. So this is something you're not obligated to do, it's something you do out of the kindness of your heart because you're just such a good Christian. 
and it's something that you do out of an overflow of kindness and love. Uh, it's just generosity. Instead of seeing racial justice as something that is owed to people, that you are obligated because of the gospel to participate in. So I would say that's one kind of inflection point about white saviorism. Um, I said this in a Facebook post earlier this week, uh, and I want to say it tonight because I think this might be Jamar's last Wednesday night with us. I, I think Jamar is one of uh, the leading thinkers and most faithful witnesses of Jesus-centric Christianity in our day. And he, he, in his writings from afar, but also his friendship to me uh, in close proximity has meant the world to me, your teacher to me, your friend to me, uh, and I'm most grateful for that. That's a gift from God. Uh, and anything Jamar writes, any podcast on which he speaks, is well worth your time. So if you've yet to buy The Color of Compromise, do so. If you've yet to listen to any of his uh, 1,600 podcasts that he's on, uh, please do so. They're always talking about uh, things in the depths. Even if it's pop culture, Jamar's able to think about it at a deep, substantive, theological level, uh, and you'll learn something if you listen to him. Next Wednesday, we will be at the Ron Robinson Theater. So we're breaking our schedule a little bit, just so everyone knows. We're participating, and uh, we as Second Baptist and Philander Smith, uh, led by Tamika Edwards, are co-sponsoring a story slam by, uh, that's sponsored by the Winthrop Rockefeller Foundation. I, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but the, the foundation has sort of rebooted their long-term trajectory, and they are investing in racial equity in Arkansas. Mm. And so this is an event in which some of their staff, but also some of our city leaders, civic leaders, are going to be uh, telling their stories about racial equity, and we'll be there to learn from them and participate in that. So that will be at the Ron Robinson Theater, same time, 6 to 7 next Wednesday. If you don't know where that is, or don't want to park downtown, you can come the second, and uh, we'll leave probably a quarter till and take the bus from the church, and all of you are welcome to join us in that regard. I saw President Favors sneak in. Again, we're most grateful for your hospitality and our partnership with you all. Uh, just last week, Ethics Daily, one of our ministry partners, was here on this campus about to do a full-length documentary on the work and witness and history and future of Arkansas Baptist College. And was able to participate in that, and that'll be a great tool for President Favors and ABC to use. Uh, so good things are happening here on this campus. I'll leave you with this sole reflection tonight. First John in Scripture says, perfect love casts out. Hit pause. Don't finish. What do you expect that verse to say. I expect that verse to say perfect love casts out hatred. Because for most of my life that, that was the those were the poles, right? Love over here and hatred over here. And certainly there's some truth to that. But especially given what how Jamar ended tonight. 
Part of me wonders if underneath that hatred, at a deeper, more primal level, is it fear? Have you ever thought about how hard it is to love anything you're afraid of? The opposite of love is not hatred at its most fundamental level. The opposite of love at its most fundamental level is fear. And perfect love casts out fear. So let us go and be bold. Let us go and be courageous. Let us go in love, not in the flippant cultural kind of way, but in the first John Jesus kind of way, the love that has a spine in it. And let's cast out our fear. The fear that's in the depths of our souls and the fear that's in the air in our culture today. Let us practice the love that casts out fear. And all God's people said, Amen. Can we, before we depart tonight, thank Jamar for his work with us?